You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. privilege of going and visiting the Legacy Museum in Montgomery, Alabama. And the Legacy Museum, it, it brings to life the, the unsettling legacy of slavery in America through the use of videos, images, and the telling of black people's stories in their own words. And it does this in a way, it walks you through the history of lynching, of segregation, of mass incarceration, in a way that makes it very difficult for you to leave those doors unaffected by the things that you've just seen and heard. And there was a point as I was walking through and just taking everything in where I had to take a seat and I wept. I cried harder than I've cried in a while. I sat and I wept as I read the words of black people captured and taken from their native land and dragged on the slave ships to be brought to a foreign land, to be held captive by people who hated them to their very core. I sat and I wept as I read words like this. I was born in Alabama in 1846 and had a hard time all through slavery as my mother was sold away from me. I was so lonesome without her that I would often go about my work and cry and look for her return as I was told by some slaves that she would be brought back, but she never came back. My master was so cruel to slaves that they were almost crazy at times. He would buckle us across a log and whip us until we were unable to walk for three days. On Sunday, we would pray to God to fix some way to be freed from our mean masters. I sat and I wept as I listened to a woman sing this refrain in a video. Oh my Lord, why was I ever born? I sat and I wept as I was once again faced with the painful injustices that continue to make many places around the globe foreign and hostile land for black people. But it's not just African Americans who have had cause for lament and for, for evil and, and injustice. The people of Ukraine weep this morning over the violence that has visited their country. Many Latin American peoples weep over the violent circumstances in which they are forced to live because they can't afford to flee. And maybe some of you have wept over evils done against you. Maybe some of you have wept over mistreatment at your job or, or someone ruining, ruining your reputation by slander. These afflictions often leave us wondering, how can I worship God and sing happy songs of his praise when the world isn't as it should be? How can I maintain my resilience in my faith when I feel overwhelmed by the evils of this world? Centuries ago, the people of Israel were wrestling with this very question. Psalm 137 finds the Lord's people weeping over evils done against them. When the Babylonians attacked their land, many of the people were forcibly taken from everything that they knew, and they wept. The temple, their meeting place with God was destroyed, and they wept. They were held as captives with little sense of hope for the future, and they wept. 
The Lord has a word for the afflicted, the downcast, the marginalized, the hurting, and all those who are longing for flourishing and freedom from the powers of evil. No matter where this text finds you this morning, I want you to see that there is a word from the Lord. He is the God who can put a song in your heart, even when your heart is broken. So this morning, we are going to take a look at Psalm 137 through two points. Number one, longing for Jerusalem. And point number two, longing for judgment. Longing for Jerusalem and longing for judgment. Let's look at what it means to long for Jerusalem. Our text immediately begins with a detailed account of the sufferings that God's people were enduring and the tears that flowed from these sufferings. And why were they weeping? The text tells us in verses 2 and 3 that the Babylonians, they hated God's people. And they looked to find amusement in their agony by saying, sing for us one of your songs of Zion, one of your happy little Jewish songs. It was adding insult to their injury. It wasn't enough that their oppressors took them captive, was it? No, they reveled. They rejoiced and celebrated in the cruelty that they were inflicting upon God's people. This cruel request actually reminds me of the practice of plantation owners who found amusement in, the, in forcing their slaves to dance for them. This is how one source puts it. The African slave danced not for love, not for joy, nor religious celebration as he had done in his native land. He danced in answer to the whip. He danced for survival. The process of dancing to slaves demonstrates the way slave owners made negative a practice that for many African slaves had been culturally redeeming. And this is exactly what the Babylonian captors are trying to do to their Israelite captives in our passage. They're trying to take one of their sacred, joyful songs that they would use in religious celebration and worship of their God in their native land and turn it into a tool of mockery to exploit their pain. Any of y'all ever had your pain exploited before? And the Israelite worship band, they respond to this insulting request by putting away their musical instruments as an act of protest. And they ask the question that I want to set before you today. How can we sing the song of the Lord in a foreign land? How can we sing the song of the Lord in a foreign land? How can I sing a joyful song in a jarring world? How can I sing a song of praise in a world of pain? How can I sing songs of delight in a world of despair? Brothers and sisters, what are your waters of Babylon? What pains in your life make it feel close to impossible to sing the Lord's praise? Maybe for you, sitting beside the waters of Babylon looks like scrolling through your news feed and seeing the headlines of another mass shooting. Or you hear about increasing polarization in the church and beyond. Or acts of political violence, and the list just goes on. Maybe you hear this news and you ask, how can I sing songs of praise in a place where peace isn't present? Maybe you or someone you love dearly is struggling with health issues. And maybe you think on your physical or even mental ailments 
or the health condition of a loved one and ask yourself, how can I sing songs of life and love in a land of languish and loss? Young people, maybe you felt how it feels to be pushed out, to be told you're not welcome, we don't like you. Maybe you've been isolated, bullied, and you know what it means to feel worthless. Young people, maybe you think about the hurtful ways that others treat you and you ask yourself, how can I sing happy songs of love when I feel so unhappy and unloved? Maybe some of us have felt the, the jeers and the mocking of coworkers, friends, or even family because we call ourselves Christians. Maybe you think on how people around you mock and maybe even despise you for what you believe. And you ask yourself, how can I sing the songs of the Lord in a place where his name is laughed at? Maybe your waters of Babylon are the streams of sin and addiction. Maybe you think on those habits that you can't break or shake. And you think on your brokenness and ask yourself, how can I sing the songs of the Lord when I feel like such a hypocrite, such a sinner, and such a failure? You fill in the blanks, brothers and sisters. What are your waters of Babylon? What situations are suffocating your songs of praise? Just to reorient us in our sermon series, the titles of the series is Songs in the Key of Life. And the big idea is that the Psalms have something to say for every area of our life. So then what is it that this Psalm right here, Psalm 137, has to say to us? Why is this a psalm that you need to give your attention to right now this Sunday morning? Well, the psalm is a song of sorrow and sadness. It is a song of communal lament. As I mentioned just a few minutes ago, this is a song for the oppressed, a song for the marginalized. This is a song for those who've been bullied, the beaten, the battered, and the bruised. It's a song for those who have been defeated dispossessed, disheartened, and disregarded. If you know what it feels like to lose, to be lonely, or to feel lost, this is a psalm for you. Because this psalm not only shows us that God has something to say to us in these moments, but this psalm also trains our longings. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. The psalmist says, If I forget you, Jerusalem... May my right hand wither. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. The interesting thing is that immediately after the psalmist asks, how can I sing the song of the Lord in a foreign land? He bursts into a song. He bursts into a song about Jerusalem. But this isn't one of the songs that the Israelites sang in the days of old. You see, the Israelites could not bring themselves to sing a song of Zion in submission to the demands of the captors who sought amusement from their agony. But in the safety of his prayer closet, where he was alone and found safety in the presence of his Lord, the psalmist finds a new song of Zion to sing. But the song was not a song of joy like his captors demanded. Rather, it was a song of anguish-filled longing for Jerusalem. 
This new song was a song that was custom made and tailor fitted for his particular flavor of affliction. Does anybody in here know that when you are going through some things, the Lord will put a new song in your mouth? Does anybody in here know that when the enemy will suffocate your joy, the Lord will have you breathe forth a new song of Jerusalem? Does anybody know that when you feel like you are walking through the depths of grief, the Lord will stir up in you a new song of glory? Y'all don't have to take my word for it. Y'all can look at Abraham. And see that when he was wandering around a land that was not his own, it was a foreign land, he was able to sing a new song of the Lord because he was clinging to the promise that God would make of him a great nation. And he was clinging to the promise that God would settle his people into a place where God himself would be with them. And the heart of God's presence with his people would be in Jerusalem, where God would dwell with them as their king. In fact, Jesus said that Abraham saw that day from a distance. Abraham saw the day of Jesus, the true Jerusalem king. He saw it coming. Abraham saw that day of the Jerusalem king, and he couldn't help himself but to jump three feet in the air, click his, click his feet together in a shout of joy. Abraham was able to sing the song of the Lord in a foreign land. But not just Abraham, you can even look at Joseph. Look at Joseph and see that when he was in a foreign land, when he was betrayed by his very own brothers, when they sold him as a slave, and he found himself in Egypt alone, far away from the family of God, estranged from his own family. Even then, Joseph was able to look beyond the walls of his Egyptian prison and envision a day where he would sing a new song, saying, y'all meant it for bad, but God meant it for good. God allowed this so that through me, God's family will be preserved, and we will make it to Jerusalem. Joseph was able to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. Y'all can even look at David. He was on the run from Saul, wandering around in a foreign land. And the Lord had placed Saul into his hands. David had the perfect opportunity to kill the man who was trying to kill him. David was able to step up to Paul and to sing to him. He said, I caught you slipping. And I can do you bad. But vengeance ain't mine. It's the Lord's to have. And I can imagine that after he sang that line, he envisioned the day when he'd be dancing bringing the ark of the Lord into the holy city of Jerusalem. And he could have stopped himself from busting into, some, into those new, new Jerusalem moves right then. David was able to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. And these are wonderful biblical examples. But the most certain proof that we're able to find our song in these trying times. The great soul power to lift our hearts and our voices in these times of affliction. The proof and the power were revealed in the fullness of time. When a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief entered this world for us and for our salvation, Jesus stepped down from heaven into a foreign land, a land of hostility. And we are told that he had his face set on Jerusalem. He told his disciples that when they got there, that Jesus himself, he'd be arrested and crucified. And Jesus was in the garden the night when he was arrested. He was deserted by his friends, and he wrestled with despair. He cried out, my father, is there any way that this cup could pass from me? But that wasn't all he said. Jesus looked ahead to the joy that was set before him. He looked to the day of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, where his people would live with him forever. But he knew, he knew that the only day they'd get to that new Jerusalem joy 
was if he first went to that old Jerusalem cross. And because of that new Jerusalem joy that he looked forward to, he was able to bear the agony of that old Jerusalem cross. And he was able to sing, not my will, Father, but your will be done. And just like the Babylonians, Jesus' oppressors mocked him on the cross. They said, you're the king of Jerusalem, right? Save yourself. But Jesus was able to sing, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he was able to sing the song of victory while in the jaws of defeat. When he sang out his final chorus, it is finished. Jesus, the true Jerusalem king, was able to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. And it's this gospel hope that puts a song in our mouths. And why stop there? We can see this playing out in the early church, which lets us know that it can still happen for us today. Look at Stephen holding on to his song of faith even as he was martyred. Proof that God can do it in you. Look at Peter and the apostles preaching Christ, bearing witness. And even after being beaten with rods and having their lives threatened, they saying we cannot stop speaking of what we have seen and heard. Proof that God can do it in you. Look at Paul and Silas singing the Lord's song in the dusty old prison cell. Proof that God can do it in you. You can go on and look at the countless Christians who sang the Lord's song as they were being mocked, maligned, and martyred for their faith. Proof that God can do it in you. And brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you today that because you and I are part of this very same story of redeeming love, you too can set your heart on Jerusalem, on the new Jerusalem. You can set your hearts on the glory of the life to come, where every wrong that is now prolonged will be discontinued, where every tear shall disappear, where every loss will have its cost overpaid in full, where we will see and forever be with the God who made, saves, and raises us. And as you long for that new heavenly Jerusalem, you can sing the Lord's song in the midst of your pain. You can sing the Lord's song in the midst of the health struggles. You can sing the Lord's song in the midst of sadness. You can sing the Lord's song although you long for gladness. You can sing the Lord's song in the midst of feeling alone. You can sing the Lord's song in the midst of longing for home. And you can sing the Lord's song in the midst of feeling lost. Along with all the disheartened saints that have gone before us, you can sing, Jerusalem land my God has promised to be. So Jerusalem land my eyes shall see. If you believe it, can I get an amen? amen? Now, while I know all of this is true, that out of our longing for the heavenly Jerusalem, we can find a new song even while we're far from home. I'm also painfully aware that there are times when we hope for the new Jerusalem and it just feels like it's not enough. It doesn't feel like it's enough to stir up songs of praise in the right now foreign land. And to that I say, beloved, it's not just our longing to be in Jerusalem that stirs up a song of the Lord in the midst of our pain. But we're also able to sing the Lord's song because of the good news that God is going to deal with all of this evil definitively. We're also able to sing the Lord's song in the midst of grave injustice because we long for the Lord's righteous judgment. And this brings me to our final point, longing for judgment. In 1974, Stevie Wonder imagined what the world would be like when all is made right. 
And he penned these words in the song entitled, They Won't Go When I Go. This is what he said. No more lying friends wanting tragic ends. Though they do pretend, they won't go when I go. Big men feeling small, weak ones standing tall. I will watch them fall. They won't go when I go. And I'll go where I've longed to go so long, away from tears, gone from painful cries, away from saddened eyes. Along with him, I'll buy, because they won't go when I go. Beloved, this is a beautiful way to get at what this psalm is saying in verses 7 through 9. It means that everyone who made a career of evil, injustice, and oppression, and who chose not to repent of their wicked deeds, they won't go to the new Jerusalem when we go. They won't go to heaven with me. The Lord is going to sort them out in the end so that I don't have to worry about that right now. Listen to the words of pain that the psalmist cries out in verses 7 and 9. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. These words are shocking. And dare I say, even embarrassing to read as Christians. We ask, how can the same word of God that tells us to turn the other cheek, the same word of God that tells us to love our enemies as we want to be loved, how can that same word of God contain such a terrifying statement as this? Well, brothers and sisters, we can't even begin to comprehend the message that God is communicating through these verses until we're willing to step into the pain that they're dripping with. This is how one commentator puts it. The Psalms have, among other roles in scriptures, one which is peculiarly their own, peculiarly, <laughs> to touch and kindle us rather than to simply address us. The passages on which we may be tempted to sit in judgment have the shocking immediacy of a scream to startle us into feeling something of the desperation which produced them. Without verses like this, we would definitely be less embarrassed, but we would also have less of an understanding of the dark places of the earth, which are full of the habitations of cruelty, a cruelty which can bring faithful men and women to their breaking point. What this commentator is saying is that we can't rush to mentally analyze these words. First, we have to emotionally sympathize with them. He's saying that we can't rush to criticize these words, but rather to sympathize with the pain that they're dripping with. These, are, these words are given to us in such a raw, shocking, and white-hot form to shake us out of just merely thinking about the pain that the psalmist is feeling and to feel his emotions after him. To feel the same agony that would bring him to such, write such fierce words. These things sound harsh to us. But this was a contextual way of saying that the Lord would stop evil at his root. That the Lord will make good on his promise to repay every evil deed in the same degree. The, the psalmist is asking in a poetic way that the legacy and lineage of evil would be ended by the Lord's very own hand. 
And we need to realize this is actually the other side of the gospel. That they won't go when I go. That that's good news. And we're not just talking about evil people. We're talking about sin. We're talking about disease. We're talking about death, despair, depression. They won't go when I go. Brothers and sisters, we are resurrection people. We're the family of God. And tough times of suffering and evil make it hard to find our song to sing at times. But the good news of the gospel is that the Lord has some, done something definitive in history through Jesus Christ. He's put a song in our broken hearts to ultimately make, us, make all things new. And how does this good news transform us? Well, one, this good news frees us to lament. We are free to name the evils and grieve them before a caring God in prayer. Because this is the beginning of actually resisting evil and oppression. It's an act of faith to trust God with our frustrations, with our pains, to trust that he will take them seriously. This good news also transforms us and frees us to leave judgment to the Lord. We're all tempted from time to time to take matters into our own hands. But the reality is that when we take matters into our own hands, we often just reproduce evil. The Lord tells us, vengeance is mine. I will repay and he can be trusted to execute perfect, ultimate justice. And one of the greatest acts of faith is to entrust these matters to the Lord as we faithfully work to build something more beautiful. In light of this good news, we can let praise be our weapon. How do you fight off the despair that injustice produces? Turn your heart to the Lord in praise. How do you battle with the anger that such evils produce? Turn your heart to the Lord in praise. Amen. As Christians, we must honor the place and importance of our emotions. But our emotions should be in the passenger seat, That's right. That's right. not the driver's seat. Praise redirects our emotions, our hearts, and even our bodies. Keeping the piano in key, keeping steering aligned, and keeping our hearts rightly cal calibrated. In the gospel, Jesus Christ has taken a question how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And he's turned into, into an exclamation point. We can sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.